Good evening, I'm Ted Koppel. Surely everyone knows by now that Buckwheat is dead. But for those of you who have not seen the videotape of Buckwheat being shot, let's take a look. Long-range free balloons released in Japan carried explosives to the North American continent. Never are they allowed to forget that the way of Japan is the way of the warrior and that modern weapons of war are as glorious as the samurai swords with which their ancestors won honor and immortality. Tai Whip, Heavy Longmire, Gustav Mateblanc. Is GLK London transmitting on the short wave band on 10.4 meters at a frequency of 250 megacycles per second? This is GLK London transmitting on the short wave band on 10.4 meters at a frequency of 250 megacycles per second. Can you hear me? Can you hear me? Can you hear me? Can you hear me? Come on then, Plato, enlighten me. Welcome back to Can You Hear Me, the podcast that. I know, I know, it's supposed to be three guys talking about stuff, but I can't seem to get the other two to agree to appear together at the same time, so there's a lot of contractual disputes, and we may be getting some legal firms involved, I'm not sure how this is going to shake out, but anyway, for now, you have me, your old pal, Gustav Monteblanc, and I will give you a little history tidbit today, something that I'd forgotten about until Professor Brad brought it up while he was appearing on KTCK The Ticket on the Cirque du Soroy show. Once again, I'm Gustav Montebank. You can reach me on Twitter at RealGustav. And if you'd like to encourage my maybe former partners, I'm not sure, Heavy Longmire and Ty Webb, you can reach them on Twitter at LongmireHeavy and at Tyweb three thousand, and we have our show Twitter at Can You Hear Me Pod, and of course we love your emails. Send those to Can You Hear Me Pod at gmail dot com. As I mentioned, Brad was on the radio this week, and it reminded me something that he said on this history quiz that he was uh, trying to give to the Lithuanian twins that I'd forgotten about. I remember reading about it in the old World War II Time Life books, and it kind of stuck in the back of my head as an interesting footnote, but I hadn't thought much about it since then. And I thought, well, this would be a good, quick, interesting piece, and I hope y'all find it uh, as fascinating as I do. I suppose just about everybody has a basic understanding of World War II and who the particular sides were between the Axis powers and the Allied powers. The rest of the world was neutral, but watching things very closely, as there's no doubt that it impacted everyone in some way, shape, or form. And in America, we were focused on our two theaters of conflict. The European theater, where the Allies were working against Germany and Italy, and then the Pacific Theater, where the Allies were fighting against the Imperial Japanese Army and Navy. Now, with the wide expanse of the Pacific acting as a buffer, the mainland of the United States was for the most part safe from Japanese attack. Now, the Japanese, of course, carried out the Aleutian Campaign in southwestern Alaska, where they took control of the Aleutian Islands and held them for almost a year, but 
At the time, Alaska was still just a territory, and that wasn't on the actual mainland. The mainland proper, or the 48 states at the time, however, only suffered a couple of bombardments by some Japanese submarines, which did relatively minor damage and resulted in no reported casualties that I'm aware of. And interestingly enough, in 1942, a Japanese seaplane carrying incendiary bombs tried to start a forest fire in Oregon. Now, you may be wondering how exactly a Japanese seaplane got to Oregon. Well, it had been launched from a submarine aircraft carrier. Now, I know that seems like an oxymoron, submarine aircraft carrier, but they really did exist, although it seems like World War II was about the end of those. You know, there's a quote which has been repeated over and over again that was supposedly said by Admiral Yamamoto. Now, this uncorroborated quote is generally phrased as, you cannot invade the mainland United States. There would be a rifle behind every blade of grass. I've seen a couple of variations of it, some a little more wordy than others, but it might exist in some collection of papers of Gordon Prang, who was a historian focusing mainly on General Douglas MacArthur, or it may have just been made up. I don't know. But it really doesn't matter in the grand scheme of things, since the logistics of an invasion of the United States mainland was impractical to begin with for the Japanese Army and Navy. There would never be a serious consideration of a mainland invasion by Japanese forces, but that doesn't mean there wasn't ever a plan put into place to attack the mainland. The Number 9 Research Laboratory was a special unit of the Imperial Japanese Army charged with developing all sorts of secret weapons and unconventional devices for warfare. Think of them sort of like Q from the James Bond movies, but on a much bigger scale. In 1944, at the Number 9 Research Laboratory, Fusen Bakuden was conceived and prepared. Now in Japanese, Fusen Bakuden literally means balloon bomb. You'll also see this program uh, referred to as Fugo, as its codename. So the scientists at the Number 9 Research Laboratory, they knew that there was a very strong jet stream that flowed in the upper altitudes over the Pacific, that flowed west to east from the Japanese islands to the western shores of the United States and Canada. The scientists believed that they could release balloons carrying weapons from Japan and that they would be carried across in a matter of probably under three days to the North American mainland where they would cause damage and psychological terror within the United States and Canada. Initially, they constructed the balloons out of rubberized silk, that proved to be problematic on a couple of fronts. The design that they eventually settled on was made of a special paper which was made from the roots of mulberry trees. This was a normal type of commercial paper that they used for various applications within Japan, such as screens and that sort of thing. And it was available commercially, but only in small sections. So these sections had to be manually glued together. Now, being a nation in true total war, civilians were set up in large rooms such as gymnasiums and sumo halls, and they were instructed to prepare and glue these paper pieces together with a, a type of paste. With the full support of the military and with 
civilian labor helping out in the war effort, the program eventually built over 9,300 balloons from a period of 1944 to 1945 that we know about. The first balloons that they created were fitted with radio gear, which was used to track the balloons as they made their progress away from Japan, across this Pacific jet stream towards North America. Japanese listing stations were able to triangulate the position of these balloons as they made their way across the Pacific, and it validated that the plan was feasible. So then, the balloons were fitted with a setup to deliver incendiary bombs, which the command hoped would cause injury, start fires, and randomly destroy buildings. The balloons themselves were filled with hydrogen gas, for uh, the buoyancy, which in itself is highly flammable. Uh, One only needs to remember the Hindenburg disaster to realize how flammable a hydrogen-filled balloon could be. The technicians at the Number 9 Research Laboratory calculated that with the lift of the hydrogen balloon carrying the payload to approximately 30,000 feet, that it would only take the powerful jet stream winds around three days to fly the balloon 5,000 miles from the main island of Japan to the North American mainland. And it's possible that it might even get there even quicker. The balloons themselves were engineered with a complex control system that was rigged to an altimeter. And as the daytime hours would heat the hydrogen gas, the balloon would expand and rise higher. And if that was the case, a valve would release a little bit of the hydrogen. Now, if it sank below that ideal 30,000 feet especially at nighttime, as it would cool down and as the balloon would shrink, then ballast would be dropped. So they had bags of sand or what have you hanging from this undercarriage under the balloon. It was engineered extremely well. And for an analog system that's not being controlled actively by anyone, it was amazing to me of uh, how effective it was. The ballast were suspended upon a, a ring underneath the balloon, and as if the altimeter got below a certain threshold, a charge would be fired that would jettison two bags of ballast on opposite sides of this carriage, so the balloon would always try to stay fairly balanced. And at the end of the three-day period, as the last of the ballast would be released that would trigger another final charge of gunpowder that would drop the bomb payload and and also would light a 64-foot-long fuse that would then make its way up to the hydrogen balloon and ignite that, thus destroying the entire balloon. So in effect, the number 9 research laboratory had created an automatic, autonomous, aerial invasion force of over 9,000 balloons to attack the North American mainland. And that opened up valuable manpower that could be saved to fight the increasingly brutal Pacific campaign. It was passive. It it was expensive. It, It required an awful lot of effort to create the balloons. It also required hydrogen to be harvested at, uh, I think Japan had three hydrogen plants at the time. But it wasn't taking fighting men and fighting vehicles away from the much larger battles that were going on. And so the first balloons were launched on November 3rd, 1944. As I mentioned, 
these early balloons were carrying radio equipment and not the actual bomb payloads yet. The number nine research lab scientist estimated that it would take three days. But we know that they released on November 3rd, and the first report actually occurs on November 4th. And that's of a radio balloon that was found floating off the coast of Los Angeles by a Navy patrol boat. That seems super fast. I don't know. That's just what I've found in, in my research. I, I question maybe that there's not a day lag somewhere there, or if they, of course, we are dealing with the international dateline too, so I haven't gotten out my calculator and my slide rule to figure all this out. But it did prove that they were getting there. And by the end of November, balloons had been found off the coast of California, obviously, and in Wyoming and Montana. We all know that 1944 was a lot different than the world we live in today. And one of those main things that stands out to me about it was that the government actually successfully tried to keep the story under wraps. Although internally, the military as well as national and state governmental agencies were put on high alert about the mysterious balloons. There were some balloons which had been spotted by the Army Air Corps, and attempts were made to shoot them down. And while there were a few intercepted and shot, the fighters were limited to how much lower altitude they had to stay at compared to how high the balloon was flying and how fast it was. So they did escape the Army Air Corps. And over this course of the, the time that these balloons were active, they were spotted from all the way in Alaska and Western Canada and as far down as Northern Mexico and Texas and everywhere in between on this Western part of the United States and Canada. As I mentioned, some of the bombs were fitted with incendiary devices with the hope that they would catch forest fires or catch buildings on fire, although some just carried high explosive charges. And due to the importance of the wood industry and the forest fires being a major threat, the U.S. Forest Service was enlisted to help prevent the damage from any possible forest fires caused by these balloons. We don't know how many of the balloons actually made it to North America, but we do know through the sightings that happened, confirmed sightings, that they made it as far east as Michigan on some cases, with one actually being reported just outside of Detroit. Back in Japan, the Japanese government was reporting to their citizens that the campaign was highly effective, with widespread damage from fires and thousands of casualties. But this was just them trying to put out some good propaganda. And while there were definitely balloons that had delivered their payload and caused explosions and caused some fires, the damage was actually very limited. But with hundreds of balloons having been seen and unexplained fires going on, unexplained explosions, you just have to wonder how this didn't turn into a panic. And that's where how different a world it was back then comes into play. The government actually asked local and national newspapers and radio stations not to report the incidents. And even when whole groups of locals actually observed the balloons with their own eyes, the military would roll in and would ask the folks to keep it a secret. And it appears that for the most part they did. Can you imagine that happening today? It would be all over social media in a flash, and someone would be doing an extensive yet poorly made podcast about it in no time at all. As I mentioned, the Japanese are putting out very public statements of how well the balloon campaign is going. 
But we know that they didn't really know how it was going because the Imperial Japanese command had no solid intelligence showing if they had been successful or not. The press blackout that the government had gotten everybody to buy into had kept the balloon stories from being reported, and that had kept a lid on exactly how many or how far the balloons were actually getting inland. So the Japanese were operating under faith and hope that this campaign was actually successful. But as we know, by 1945, the Pacific Theater is not going well for the Japanese. And this program, as I mentioned earlier, was very expensive, and we're not seeing any quantifiable results that they can pick up from any intelligence. So it's starting to go bad for the program. The higher command is saying that they're not going to give them any money, and it looks like the program's on the verge of being shut down. And then we start to see Allied bombing of the Japanese islands pick up, and two out of the three hydrogen plants were damaged, if not fully destroyed. So, in April of 1945, the last fire balloon was launched, effectively the end of the program. One of the ironies, if you would call it that, of the successful media blackout of reporting on the balloons was that even though a potential panic had been thwarted, it also left the general population unknowing of the danger of these mysterious balloons. And it's not like they were labeled with, hey, explosives, danger. And that in itself may have potentially had a hand in the only confirmed deaths by the fire balloons that we know of in the 48 states. On May 5th, 1945, Archie Mitchell, who was a pastor in Bly, Oregon, took his pregnant wife, Elsie, and five children from their Sunday school class, the Bly Christian and Missionary Alliance Church, on a picnic out in the the forest to Gearhart Mountain. Archie let out Elsie and the five children to look for a picnic spot, and he drove up the road just a little bit further to park the car. But before he could get back, Elsie and the five children had discovered one of the Japanese fire balloons on the ground. And as Archie approached, there were two explosions, with the four boys instantly dying in the first explosion. And the second explosion probably causing Elsie's death, with Elsie literally dying in Archie's arms as he had gotten back and was trying to extinguish her clothes, which were on fire from the incendiary bomb. The fifth child survived for a little while, but she died later on from her wounds. As I mentioned, Professor Brad kind of re-sparked this idea in my mind, and when I was speaking to him, he reminded me that there was a firefighter that was part of the Forestry Service slash Army coordinated effort to try and fight the forest fires during this time period, that had died during an effort to put out a fire. Now, some people claim that counts as a death due to the bombs, but I'm not sure there's definite proof that his death was directly caused by one of the fire balloons. He may have actually died during a jump into a fire zone that might have been caused by one of the balloons. So most people don't link his death directly to the balloons. But the Mitchell party definitely was caused by the balloon. And when the army bomb squads got there, I believe someone said it appeared that it was 
had been set off when somebody may have kicked the, the undercarriage, causing the, the bombs to explode. And they also noticed that the bomb had probably been there for several days because the snow had melted in the area, but there was still snow underneath the uh, canopy of the balloon. It had been laying there for several days without having exploded, but unfortunately the children found it and must have messed with it somehow, causing it to ignite. As I mentioned earlier, no one knows exactly how many of the balloons actually made it to North America, but I've seen estimates up around a thousand, and many more were found in the years after the end of the war, and surprisingly, when I started to read up on this, there was one found in 2014 by the Forestry Service in British Columbia, where they found the framework of the balloon. Obviously, the paper balloon had rotted away long ago, but this carriage from the underside of the balloon was actually stuck in the dirt for over 70 years. They called in a bomb squad from the Canadian Navy, and they determined that it was too dangerous to move it, so they planted some C4 charges on each side of it and destroyed the carriage and the accompanying explosives instead of trying to risk moving the artifact and having it cause a lot more damage. So that's the story of the Japanese fire balloons. A little-remembered, little-known oddity of World War II. And obviously, since they're still finding them every once in a while, maybe you should keep an eye out for the leftovers of the Japanese balloon bombs. And I guess we'll talk to you later. Adios. Bye. Now it can be told that Canada was bombed from the skies. Many points in the Dominion and the United States were under fire from Japanese balloon bombs. Released in Japan and carried by stratospheric wind currents, already some 250 have been located and search parties are still looking for others. Inter-service bomb disposal units, immediately formed, locate and dispose of the weapons designed to threaten our great forests with incendiary fires. Many are found intact because the winter frost had stopped the mechanism which was designed to release the bombs. A clever control system kept the balloon at an even height during its nine days trip across the Pacific. If the balloon lost altitude, ballast was automatically dropped. If it rose too high, bursting was avoided by means of a robot gas release valve. Purely a nuisance weapon, the bomb was beaten by Old Man Winter and the vigilance of the Inter-Service Bomb Location Squad. And world-class championship wrestling, I'm Bill Mercer with Jay Salley. Good night from Dallas, Texas.